You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of his followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org. And welcome to you that are watching online. Glad that you're with us. It's uh, November, and November is always such a great month in the life of the church. I mean, uh, there's no other holiday that kind of has a little bit sense of purity to it uh, uh, than Thanksgiving. You know, it's just kind of like one meaning. We're grateful for God's goodness in our lives. And so... May this be a great month for us as, as we're together and worshiping him. I think this is one of our bigger groups today, so that's fun to say, and glad that you're here. Well, um, I'm thankful for something, uh, and you know, I mean, uh, Ron so kindly prayed for me, and, and God has been really good to me, and three weeks into it, I'm, I'm doing well, and I, I have a fake knee, and I wanted to show you my fake knee. So, there it is, that's the... Uh, I know it's pretty sexy, sorry, you know, but uh, um, there it is. It's, uh, it's a pretend knee, and, I, they, and uh, right now, even three weeks into it, it's working better than the original, <laughs> so I'm thinking of it as a gift from God, so of course, and glad for that. Well, I, I didn't think I'd be standing here 10 days, well, I don't know when it was, it was sometime, uh, maybe um, uh, Monday, the, like the 25th of October, and I was with the doctor or the therapist. I can't remember. I've had so many appointments. But, and I was saying I was going to preach. I'm a preacher. I'm going to preach on the 7th. They go, oh, yeah, right, sure. And so, but even then I was doing pretty well um, as the therapist thought. And here I am. So thank you, God, that I get to do this. You know, this month you can just see in the bulletin, we just put these things that are so fun for us. And we're so glad to be a part of Angel Tree and and a linger longer in a couple of weeks, and decorations, and a blood drive that we're going to help and bless others with, and so on. You can all see it there, and it's really fun to be able to announce that these things are going to happen, and this is going to be a marvelous, uh, so to speak, holiday time, as we have a focus on ministering to others and doing some of the things that we just so enjoy as a church. So I'd like to begin a story uh, with a story to introduce a story there was a king named Hero uh, of Syracuse in the third century. And he um, uh, commissioned a craftsman to make a crown for him, a gold crown. And he gave him all the gold he would need to make the crown. But the king did not totally trust this craftsman and wondered if he had used some silver to replace some of the gold. The weight of the crown was what he thought it would be, but he wondered about that because he didn't trust him. And it was troubling to him. And so he went to Archimedes. Archimedes was a famous scientist in that day. And he said, I want to know about the authenticity of this crown. And so did the craftsman use all the gold? 
And this was uh, really quite a challenge for Archimedes, a scientist, but still, how could he be sure that that crown was pure gold? And he, he contemplated it and he, he thought about it and everything. And at last, with a little sense of asp- uh, exasperation, he decided to take a bath. <laughs> no kidding. That's the story. And so he filled up the tub, but he happened to fill up the tub too full. Because when he got in the tub, some of the water splashed over the sides. And in a flash, Archimedes had this sense of revelation. This is it. He knew the answer to the problem. A body immersed in water displaces its volume and, so to speak, made it spill over. So that he knew once he discovered the volume and the weight of the crown... He could calculate its density and determine whether it was pure gold or not. And you know what he said? He said with a shout, Eureka! In Greek, that is, I found it. And not only did he say Eureka, but he jumped out of the bathtub and began to run across, as the history reports, run through the streets naked, shouting Eureka. (laughs) And so it it had such an impressionable moment that we still understand the sense of using Eureka. So much so that I said, this would be a good title for today, Eureka. And I think it it, it totally fits because Eureka means uh, sort of a moment of discovery, a a surprising event uh, uh, where... um, The true nature of something is made clear. And so we have a eureka moment in Daniel 5. We really do. And we're going to discover the nature of a young Babylonian king, the true nature of a young Babylonian king and his, his, uh, the emptiness of his gods uh, with (laughs) none other than a writing hand. That's right. And uh, so it definitely, for me, has a eureka moment to unveil the emptiness and the insubstantial sense of the king and his gods. Are you ready? Daniel 5, 31 verses. Here we go. This is where we're at in our, our journey, and we have been uh, leading up to this point where we were in chapter 4 and and Tyler pointed to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar comes to a, real, a revelation of personal faith in the living God, the Most High God. And the last thing that we hear Nebuchadnezzar saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High God and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. What is that called? A profession of faith. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came to understand the living God. And because of it, I believe that I will get to meet Nebuchadnezzar one day. I do. And I think it's really cool. But it, it, it has this exciting sense. Uh, I'm, I'm envious of Tyler because he got to do this one. And then we go to chapter 5. We're right back where we started from. We got this king that thinks he's all that. 23 years later. We meet this young king. Here we go. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. 
While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem 66 years earlier. Wow. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Uh, Really, an arrogant gesture for sure. So they... Um, So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, repeated again, making sure we know the significance. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Do you get it? They're raising a cup, these precious sacred cups to these idols. And, And so... There's nothing sacred, really. It's really a a distasteful event that really reveals the kind of God where the kind of guy Belshazzar is. But then suddenly the fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall. I thought Halloween was last week. Anyway, uh, near the lampstand in the royal palace, and the king watched the hand as it wrote his hand face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. You see, underneath this guy is a fearful young man. And so uh, some say that the words can mean that he wet himself. No kidding. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The guy is frantic. I'll do anything. Help. And so he cries out to these uh, wise men. It's sort of a repeated theme in other stories, right? Then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or tell what the king, uh, or tell the king what it meant. And so King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew even more pale and his nobles were baffled. It's a, it's a desperate moment. And so, come bounding on the scene, Queen Mother, who probably is Belshazzar's mother. No kidding. And it says, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Tradition. And then she becomes a mother and she says, don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. (laughs) It's really that kind of thing that she's correcting her own son. Come on, get it together. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, divers, the vineyard. <laughs> can't say that word right now. I'm glad I don't get to have to say it again. Then he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, interesting, very similar to his name, trying to build up the credibility of Daniel. So it's like Daniel's been lost in the shuffle. And this woman knows uh, the kind of person Daniel is, was found to be, uh, to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So, Daniel was brought before the king, verse 13, and the king said to him, 
Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Sort of a condescending way of saying things. It's like, you know, Daniel's 80 years old at this point, and I think Belshazzar, this young buck, is not very impressed. And he says things like this. I have heard, rumor has it, that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, uh, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, and they could not explain it. Now I've heard, rumor has it, that you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems if, conditional, I'm not sure it'll happen, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Same promise. Then Daniel, listen to what he says, answers the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. You know what he would normally say? He would say, your majesty, it's so good to be in your presence. Nevertheless, I read the writing, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel, as I said, has been out of, you know, the, so to speak, this, this sense of connection and leadership for 23 years. We don't have anything, uh, know anything about what happened in those 23 years, really. Your majesty, Daniel says, now watch this. This is the high point in history. In, in Daniel's estimation, this is the best thing that has happened in Babylon total, better than any all the wars and triumphs and everything. Here it is. This is what you already know about, he says. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Is from the hand of God. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed uh, from his royal Thrown and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and set over them anyone he wishes. What a message. This is like a sermon that Daniel's giving to him. And then he says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you a descendant really, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. What a strong statement. This comes from an 80-year-old guy saying, you are off base. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. This is the most offensive thing you could do to the living God. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. Read that. That's the theme of the whole book. The sovereignty of the living God. The theme. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription, this is the very hand of God. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, which is what the, and 
excuse me, here's what the words mean, mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end, tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting, Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So succinct, so strong, so sure is our man Daniel. Then, what does Dan- Belshazzar do? Execute him. No, isn't it interesting? He actually has a, a moment where he's going, oh, I've messed up. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in power, uh, purple. Uh, a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And why is this? Because I think perhaps uh, he senses the authority and the, the truth of Daniel in this message. And he, oh, do I get another chance? But he didn't get another chance. This was it. This was the sound of judgment. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Eureka. We're talking about a discovery, a powerful discovery, and we get to be a part of it. And now I know that's probably the longest reading we've ever had, but it is worth it. And we're going to just peel back this story just a little bit more as we do so. You know, the holy vessels are really the first thing you should notice in the story. They're very significant. And it was always uh, something that God noticed that they were taken from Jerusalem. We read that in Daniel. I should have kept my book open. We read that in Daniel chapter 1 where it says in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar took these items from the temple of God. And it seems like um, they were, um, there's not really a sense that they were used in the temple. They were more on display, like a sense of like, look what we did. And and so uh, no one's sure about that, but they definitely were elegant. They were sacred. uh, And yet Belshazzar blatantly defies their meaning by what he did. It's really clear. And so uh, it, it, he took something beautiful and made it so common and, and, yeah, profane. I was thinking about a movie called Sandlot, and I was thinking about a guy named Smalls. Smalls was the key character in the movie, and he, um, he was wanting to make a good uh, impression with his buddies and everything, and they didn't have a baseball. And so he went in and took his dad's baseball, and the baseball had written on it, Babe Ruth, the great Bambino. And they took this ball out and they played with it in the back sandlot baseball. Now he did it in ignorance. Belshazzar did it on purpose. We have a snapshot in the very beginning about Belshazzar's true nature. He was a man of pride and arrogance. Young at that, but he and naive in many ways, but he thought he was all that. And again, we have this theme in the book about arrogance and pride instead of humility and dependence. And so this Belshazzar is uh, someone we, in history we don't really know a lot about. Uh, we wouldn't hardly understand who he is if it wasn't from the, some of the historical records of the Babylonians. Like we learned something about Nebuchadnezzar in the records that he died in 563 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, our, really our hero, the man that turned uh, from ungodliness to faith in the Most High God. 
And he dies and he puts his son in charge. Uh, his name was Amel Mardek. And he was king for a very short time. And he was overthrown. He was executed. Very intense. And this, this idea of, of kings coming and going and assassinations and so on lasted for seven years until finally Nebonidas became king. And he had a sense of a connection to Nebuchadnezzar in this way. Most believe that he married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And that would be in verse 10, our queen mother. So Nebuchadnezzar is really the king. And here's Belshazzar. Who's he? Well, he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he uh, had a, a sense of connection by his father and, and yet the quality was not the same. So Nebuchadnezzar is a man, he's a warrior, he's an emperor, and, and things are troubled all over the empire. I mean, cities are falling and there's intensity. So Nebuchadnezzar is out fighting, continually fighting and leading battles, where he puts his son in charge of the city, Babylon. And, and that's about it. That's uh, all we sort of know about it. Only the fact is that the father has not been around, according to the record, historical record, for 10 years. A lot can happen in 10 years, right? He hasn't been in Babylon in the capital city for 10 years. And so Belshazzar does what? Exactly what he pleases. And it's not a good thing. You might sense that he has some popularity. Probably not very popular. So he throws a party to maybe gain some popularity. Things are really quite desperate at this point because the Persian army are moving, advancing right up to the city of Babylon. And they are ready, really, uh, to storm the city. If it wasn't for this huge wall and this moat and everything, they would have had the city by now. But they are taking city after city after city. One city only 50 miles away from Babylon is where Nebuchadnezzar was, and he had to escape. He had to, he had to um, escape for his life, as, as the recording goes. So this huge wall, as Tyler told us last week, is 75 feet wide, 75 feet wide. And yet there's a river that goes through it. It's called the Euphrates River, right through the city. So it has to go under the wall, right? And in that particular section, you can imagine a gate coming down and protecting the city and the wall and everything. And what do the Persians do as they're camped outside for some time, threatening to take over this city? What do they do? They begin to divert the water of the Euphrates rivers uh, out to what, however they did it. It's just a kind of a fascinating thing. So much so that the river gets lower and lower, seems to be unbeknownst to the people in Babylon. Maybe they're partying every night. But the idea is it's low. And all of a sudden, on October 12th, 539 B.C., an arsenal, a, a troop, a, a many, many... Uh, the soldiers and army advances as they wade through the Euphrates River and on that very night secretly take over the city. And we read in verse 30, the very thing that happened that night was Belshazzar was slain. That's, that's a bit of the history, something to know about. What did Belshazzar have in mind when he would put together this party? Maybe he just wanted to kind of... <laughs> you know, escape and let's all just kind of like 
get drunk and do stupid things. That sounds like maybe he could do something like that. His character was quite in question. But possibly his idea was to get everybody together and have this party and unite them to have one kind of let's get together because we got a battle coming our way. It was like a, a, a night of desperation. Get the people together. Forget about our problems. Uh, feel good about each other. And let's be ready to uh, ad, uh, face the inevitable battle that is going to take place. Well, it was too late. Too late because the writing was on the wall. <laughs> That's right. And a literal handwriting. Uh, Connie was telling me, uh, Barry, handwriting is one word. Oh, not in this case. Handwriting. There's a hand and it's writing. That's what's happening. And that's uh, so, it is such an impressive event that we still use this term, the Writing is on the wall. And what does that mean? Well, it's all but over. It's all but over. That's the kind of thing. And these are words of doom. And Belshazzar, he seems to understand that. I mean, his great, uh, his grandfather-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar, would have seen this hand and said, oh, there's something up here. There's something to notice. But Belshazzar is terrified. And in his conscience, he's troubled. He... um, he is, stirs him to want to do things that are, you know, like um, survival and get together and fear. And he is just, he is, the, looks nothing like a leader at this point. And so that's why Queen Mother comes, goes, come on, stand up. You're the king. Hail to the king. Act like it. And, and so that's uh, really the story, the intensity of this handwriting and really, um, uh, Belshazzar is beside himself because, number three, these are heavy words. These are heavy words. And the, the heavy words are, are really, I use that because they really are weighty words. That's the idea that the way that they are described has to do with weight and measurement. That, that's their meaning. Now, I put heavy words with these letters because every time it's mentioned that the wise men tried to look at this, they were looking at the writings. It didn't say the words. It says the writings. And so I think that one interpretation is that these letters were like this, scripted, M-N hyphen T-Q-L-P-R-S. I think that, I think that is a good uh, possibility, really, about what's happening here. Because the, the wise guys are clueless, but Daniel, he deciphers it. He deciphers, he knows, and he, he, he separates these um, uh, words, these letters, I'm sorry, into words, and then he puts vowels with them, and, and the magicians didn't know it. And these are words of judgment, and they could, they, you can see that in the text. But um, the idea was that they were Aramaic. Mene would be the word numbered, and numbered like the Aramaic word mina, which was a, a, a amount of money. That was the kind of thing. And then there was the uh, tekel, which was like to, to uh, weigh. It's a sense of weight. And shekel was another unit of money, but it was a, a, a weight of money, shekel. And so there's an association with that word. And then Perez is to divide. And some have interpreted maybe that was the mina, the shekel, and the half shekel was divided. 
Something like that. The measurement of money. But Daniel does not use that interpretation. So that couldn't be right. But it is some that could be deduced, even if the wise men tried to understand it. Daniel interprets it very profoundly and succinctly. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That's it. That, 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 that's uh, Daniel's uh, message to him, and they're a revelation of judgment. And what happens next for Daniel is a handsome reward. And I say handsome reward in that I don't think the handsome reward for him was what Belshazzar offered him because Daniel knew that that wasn't, I mean, before the next day, that wouldn't even be uh, relevant. It wasn't going to be third in the, in the kingdom because uh, Belshazzar would be no more and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it wouldn't be long either. And so he's not really, the handsome reward that I'm thinking about is that this faithful guy named Daniel was protected by God for 80 years in a foreign land as he spoke courageously for the living God and that God used him and that God rewarded him now and forever. And I think of Nebuchadnezzar, my biggest takeaway from the whole story so far is Nebuchadnezzar and how patient God was. God intervened in that man's life time and again for 40 years and he, and he responded. Nebuchadnezzar responded. He, Nebuchadnezzar is enjoying at this very moment a handsome reward, but not Belshazzar. And so as I read these, these, this story, to kind of let it unfold a little bit for you, it just seems to draw me to some lessons, some lessons to consider. And the first lesson is this interesting aspect of contrast, contrast. And it comes from the understanding of knowing Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. And they're in uh, juxtaposition. (laughs) But they're 23 years apart. And the author seems to be really intentional. And the author, Daniel. And he really wants to make a very important point about a contrast there are similarities. There's the dream and the writing hand and the, the, the presence of God and the interpretation of Daniel and two arrogant kings and so on like that. But the contrasts are greater. The contrast from chapter 4 of a, a, a king who accomplished much with you know, strong leadership to an upstart king who could only throw a party, to a king who had reason to be proud, to a, a young king cloaked in arrogance, a false sense of confidence, and so on. And, and, and chapter 4 leading to repentance, and chapter 5 leading to destruction. This is, this is so clear. And then you have, you have um, how Daniel uh, speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. You are the tree. See, he, Daniel didn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar this. He, he, he had a tender heart. Daniel had a tender heart for Nebuchadnezzar. I sensed he believed that God was actually going to do the things that would bring to his restoration and salvation. But not so with Belshazzar. He says the first thing he says is you can have your gifts. 
keep your reward for yourself. You get the contrast there. And it's contrast because of the character issues and the reality in these two men, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Then you have the way that Nebuchadnezzar speaks to Daniel. He says, chief of magicians, in verse 9 of chapter 4, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. I love that. Such a soft heart towards Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar could have wiped him out, but he cared about Daniel. He appreciated Daniel. But what does Belshazzar said? Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard it said. I'm not sure I believe. You see the contrast there. And these two chapters purposely put together to show this significance of contrast in our world still today. There is a contrast. We, we see it here. We see it in the, the picture of humility versus pride. We see it in restoration versus destruction. We see it here in repentance versus a hard heart. The contrast. And the contrast is outlined in God's word time and again. You can read the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1 where he takes the, the um, picture of the man who meditates on God's law day and night, the person who, who is riveted and connected to God. And he says it's like a tree planted by the stream versus the selfish, uh, wicked person who, whose life leads to destruction. The contrast in Psalm 1 as it introduces the whole book of Psalms. And then you have Jesus on the cross right there in the middle and two criminals on each side, one mocking him and others saying, Save me. This, the contrasts are undeniable. We live in a world of contrasts. And it's, it's once lost, now found. Once dead, now alive. Once saved, no longer condemned. We have this kind of contrast. And we are ones that can appreciate the contrast because we deserve to be on one side of the equation, but we are on the other. Simply because our God stirred in us a humility and faith that we want him. Amazing. And we could be like King Belshazzar if it wasn't for the grace of God. Never forget that. And then there's deja vu. That's what I call it. it it's, it's the idea of something repeating itself and repeating itself. And we see this, the continued interaction of God. And how many times do I think God tried to intervene in Belshazzar's life. Was it just once? I don't think so. In fact, it says that Belshazzar knew about Nebuchadnezzar. He was without excuse. He had seen Nebuchadnezzar and what had happened in his life. A genuine reversal, a genuine change, a genuine conversion, and he ignored it. Time and again, this arrogant king, Belshazzar, had opportunity, even as a young king, and he Missed it. But not so with Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, 40 years of God intervening through Daniel and through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in this, I see this, this sense of the Lord is patient. So patient. And, but yet he's also persistent. He's patient in your life. But he's also persistent. Because really, his picture the idea of our God is that he really has this best in mind for us. And so he gives us repeated opportunities. 
They're a deja vu in our lives. And he gives us a chance to learn again that we could change and grow. Sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we're like too preoccupied with what we want and what we have. What if we struggle with pride? What if we struggle with pride? Do you think that God then will eliminate all the successes? Or might he give you even more successes? What about fear? Do you think he'll take all the things that make you fearful and take them away? Or will he add more situations to make you fearful? What about worry? Do you think if we struggle with worry and we're confronted with worry time and again, what do you think? Do you think he'll just kind of like make all situations at ease for us so there's no trouble, no problem to worry? Or do you think he might even intensify the worrisome possibilities in your life and mine? I think that God is very persistent, and he has one goal in mind for you and me. He has this goal. He's outlined it in his words so strong to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so, our God, and I know this, I remember from the beginning of my journey in in faith, I, I bump up against worry. I was worried after knowing Christ about what kind of grades I were going to get in seminary and how well was my performance, and that was an issue, and I was worried it was good enough. And then I was worried after I got married. I mean, was my wife happy? Was, was it good? Was I good enough? And that kind of Then I was worried we not, had, not only had one child, but two childs, but three, but four childs. It's her fault. And so many things to worry about, so much to worry about. Church life, leadership possessions, all these things. Could God be stronger than to say to me, stop, don't worry about anything? That's what he said. Thank God I worry less. Still on a journey. What about this eternity in the balance? Eternity in the balance as we see this, this, this script, it just... This script, in my opinion, is a script for everybody that has ever entered this world. Everybody that breathes air through their nostrils. This is a script for them. Mene Tekel Perez. Everyone, you are numbered. Your days are numbered. You, your life weighed. Your destiny divided. Every person. We know our days are numbered. There's just so many days on this globe, in this life, part of this earth. Our days are numbered. And we will be weighed. And what will be the weight? Will it be like Belshazzar found wanting? Or will it be the weight of our soul, the identity of Jesus that lives in our soul? And what he's done for us. And divided divided one kingdom forever with the most high God, one kingdom separated from him forever. That's it. Now, you may be confident. I know my days are numbered, Barry. I know, and I'm trusting in Jesus. He is my Savior. Hallelujah. And that I am anticipating when I breathe my last breath that I'll be ushered into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Amen. That's called the gospel. And anyone that's listening in, anyone gathered here, 
If you're uncertain about that truth, your days are numbered. There is a weight. It is found in Jesus. Otherwise, we're found wanting. And there is a kingdom that lasts forever. And the invitation from the Most High God, who is as gracious as could be, who is as patient as could be, who is persistent in all his ways, will invite you and me to enjoy him forever by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. I think these writings are timeless. And so we have the marvel of hearing a story, an Old Testament story, and thinking about, am I grateful that the movement of God stirred up humility in me that I would want to trust him in faith? Do I realize that my God is working in my life and sometimes placing me in the same situations again so that I might learn what he's tried to teach me? And do I, am I sure that I have the weight of Jesus, his life in me, that I could be certain to see God and live in eternity with him forever? I'd like you to take just a quiet, short time of reflection. Just let that in. Let's pray. It's good for us to pause. We are listening, Lord, and we say yes. Your ways are always best. Amen. I was driving on Thursday in the car of my neighbor. He's an inquisitive guy, marvelous, uh, a gift as a neighbor. And he was saying, well, what are you going to preach on Sunday? Because I told him I was going to do the preaching. He goes, are you sure? <laughs> Everybody's been saying that. Are you sure? And, uh, and I gave him a little bit of the synopsis of what I was going to share. And he goes, wow, there's a lot there. Do you ever let the people have a little time of quiet and reflection so they can think it over? He goes, I go, not very often. He goes, might be a good idea. <laughs> Your one minute of reflection is from my neighbor, a godly man who loves Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, the gathering, the family feel, the connection we have with each other and with you, and Lord, for the marvel of this book coming to life for us in the book of Daniel and seeing all the, so much relevancy and connection to our journey and our world today as these men stood so strong for you. They literally had no other gods before themselves but you. And so thank you for that, that message. And Lord, may it be true in us. We ask your blessing this meal in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.